Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley, and today we're going to talk about Oracle licensing and Oracle licensing in the public cloud. I'm joined by my colleague Bjorn Rost, who is an Oracle expert, and he's going to help guide us through Oracle licensing, what's changed, and how it's going to affect us. Hey, Bjorn, how's it going? Oh, super. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So let's start by helping the audience get to know you. Can you tell us a little bit about your career and your experience with Oracle? Yeah, I've been working in IT for about 15 years now, and I started my career working for a company and later owning the company that helped ISVs publish their software and deliver their software to end clients, which involved setting up the whole stack and architecting it from data center floor, including networking and servers and hardware and storage, all the way to application service. And within this whole stack and that breadth of technology, I have always been most fascinated by the Oracle database and think for two reasons. One is because if it's so complex and there's so much to it, and the other because you can actually influence the way it, it works by so many factors and also look at so many things. I have talked about my experiences with technology and Oracle databases at a number of user group conferences, and I've been lucky enough to be awarded an Oracle ACE director. And Oracle has actually funded a lot of my travel around the world, and I've been lucky enough to speak at all continents except for Antarctica. With the love for the passion for the Oracle database, I've specialized in that now, and I work as a principal consultant for Pythian now, where I help my colleagues and our clients achieve the very best they can from the Oracle databases. Excellent. Okay. I'm hearing thorough Oracle experience in 15 years with any topic in IT is, is, a, is a lifetime or three. Okay. So although I the purpose of today's podcast is, is to talk about the recent change and how it's going to affect the public cloud, I think it's really important to understand even though it's not all that exciting, how Oracle licensing works so we can understand the impact of the change. So I realize it's a complex topic and that there are people who make their whole career licensing Oracle. So let's start briefly discussing how Oracle licensing works on-prem. Right, and I'm glad we bring it up this way because this has evolved over a number of years, right? And all the Oracle licensing has really originated in, well, something that happened 20, 20, 25 years ago where computer systems were very, very simple, and they weren't virtualizing, you just had physical servers. And in those type days, Oracle developed their SKU, being basically what they call a processor license, at least for their enterprise edition database product, right? They sold processor licenses. And you would think that's easy enough. You have one processor, you buy one license. But then over time, chip manufacturers developed chips that had multiple cores, and Oracle had to react to that. So then they said, well, you actually, you have to buy licenses per core. And it, wasn't quite as simple as that. They wouldn't say you have to buy one license per core. They introduced what is called the Oracle core factor table, where for each different technology, they have different core factors. So you would take the number of cores that your specific chip has, whether it be Spark or Power or Itanium or Intel, and you multiply with the number you find in that chart to determine the number of processor licenses you have to buy if you are licensing enterprise edition by CPUs. Okay, so listeners, just really quickly, in case you, have, you don't buy server hardware, and as, actually, this is in your desktop hardware now and laptops now, too. Years ago, Intel used to have one core per CPU, but then they had the brilliant idea of putting more CPUs in each physical CPU, often called a socket, and they divided them up, and you can buy them in lots of different ways. And it even varies more on platform, which you, you heard Bjorn mention a few there. So, Bjorn, 
tells us that Oracle created a table for us to help try and decipher some of this madness. Now, has Oracle updated the core table in the past, or is it, is it, did they just kind of create it and, and put it out there? Yeah, I just want to pick up two things, because one is actually a good example of how confusing these things can be sometimes, because you have one terminology that's used in these documents. So they talk about specifically about multi-chip modules. So one, one thing is not allowed with multi-chip modules. And then you look into CPU specs to see if a CPU is actually a multi-chip or a multi-core, and it's basically just an architecture design decision, right? But that can have an influence on how to license it, because I think that the reasoning was that you count multi-chip modules as a separate CPU socket in terms of licensing standard edition, and that had an influence. And then you look at which chips are multi-chip and which are multi-core, and what might Oracle have meant by that. So that's the first point. And then the other point is, yes, they have updated the core factor table a number of times. What they're trying to do with it mostly, I think, is steering people towards an architecture that they're also selling themselves. So nowadays, that is Intel and Spark. So you can see them being favored over, for example, power. So power chips, for example, have a, have a higher core factor. So you, pay, you have to buy more licenses per power core than per Spark or per Intel core. Got it. And even with Spark, it's quite interesting because before Oracle bought Spark, there was one chip that had a pretty bad core factor, and then Oracle bought Sun, and then the next generation of chips had a very, very favorable core oh, factor. Imagine that. Okay, so it, yeah, I don't think I even appreciated the complexity prior to this conversation. <laughs> okay, so they, we have a core factor table. It helps us determine our on-prem licensing. How does that translate to the public cloud? Oracle was certified as a first-class citizen on Azure and AWS quite some time ago, which is great. It encourages run, it running there, but I'm assuming the licensing might be a little bit different. Yeah, and there's two steps to this. One step is around virtualization in general, because what you get from this openness in general is a virtual machine. And the question with virtual machines is, how much of the virtual machine do you actually have to license? So that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, in these specific cloud environments, how do, how do we translate virtual CPUs to processor licenses? And luckily, the first part they've answered for us, right? So there's a bit of ambiguity if you run a virtual cluster of virtual of cluster of service virtual machines on them, then how much of these virtuals of these servers do you have to license for, right? Because in theory, you could just spin up your Oracle VM or even move it while it's running from one server to the other. And there is some wording in the licensing agreement that might indicate that you have to license your whole environment, your whole data center, every machine that you could theoretically move the, the, the VM to. And that is where they've made it very, very clear for Amazon and Azure. And that Oracle says, no, no, in these cases, we don't look at all of the servers that Amazon or Azure have. We just look at the number of vCPUs that were virtual cores that you run. But that's also where this recent change comes into effect and where, again, the language wasn't quite clear. So before late January is when they made the most recent change. There was a document that said this is how the licensing rules work in the public cloud environments, and it was basically an amendment to your existing license contract. So before January, they just said you count the number of virtual CPUs as if they were physical cores, and then you do the same thing as you would do on-premise. You multiply with the core factor table. The problem with that was that it wasn't quite clear what a virtual core was, because virtual core was not really a term that Amazon uses. They have to term vCPU. And then you could argue, how much is a vCPU? Is a vCPU one hyperthread? Is it one core? Is it one physical core? What exactly is it? And Amazon, to make this a bit more confusing, has another table somewhere where they actually give you the virtual core count, which for most of their instance types is 
one virtual core is exactly the same as one vCPU, but there are some instance types where it's not a one-to-one -one relation where, and in these cases, two vCPUs make up one, one core. So what a lot of people have done is, I think they've interpreted the, the, the rule a bit, a bit lax in that they just said, well, we just take the vCPUs, multiply by 0.5 because Amazon is using hyperthreading, so probably a virtual core is really more of a physical core, so we multiply by 0.5 to get to the, the number of cores, and then use the core factor table. So I think that is how a lot of people have used the rules so far, and it can be questioned if that has been true or not for all instance types, because like I said, on Amazon, some of these instance types, the virtual core count as they publish it is not the same as the vCPUs. What has changed about the licensing in January? Right, so in January they changed the same document, the amendment to the licensing contract, to be more specific in its language. So now they're not talking about virtual cores anymore, now they're strictly talking about vCPUs. And the changes that they now say, first of all, we do not apply the core factor table to these public cloud environments anymore. So you're not getting this 0.5 factor for Intel chips that they're using, we're not using that anymore. And they're also more specific about how to count the vCPUs to process a course or to course in terms of their licensing. So on Amazon, they say for Amazon instances or for Amazon servers that have hyper-threading enabled, which to my knowledge is almost all of them, they count two vCPUs as one processor, as one CPU core, and then don't apply the, the multiplying factor. And on Azure, they say, Azure never uses the hyper-threading, so we'll just count one Azure vCPU as one processor all the time and not apply the core factor. So the change in the document is A, more of a clarification, but B, really doesn't affect Azure. It's just anyone who is running Oracle on AWS. Is that correct? No, no, it's, it's the other way around. It affects Azure much more than Amazon. So uh, on Azure, previously, you would have counted two vCPUs as, well, you would have counted each CPU as one physical core, and then you would have applied the core factor. So a four CPU Azure VM, you would have counted that as four cores and then multiplied by 0.5 for Intel CPUs to get to two processor licenses that you have to buy. On Amazon, it really depends on how you interpreted the virtual core. So again, if you had a four vCPU VM on Amazon before and it's using hyper-threading, then with the new rule, you would say, well, it's four vCPUs, they're using hyper-threading, so I count them as two vCPUs or two CPUs and I buy two processor licenses. But if before you would have said, well, I'm looking at the core count and I'm dividing the vCPU number four by two first to get to two actual cores because they're using hyper-threading, and then you apply the 0.5 core factor to it, then you would have only bought one processor license. And in this case, the change would mean that you're paying twice as much for your Amazon VM. And you're probably paying twice as much for your yeah, required to license twice as many licenses on Azure for pretty much every environment. Got it, got it. So how was the announcement communicated? Was there like a public event? Did they issue a press release? Yeah, Oracle almost never does public announcements for these kind of, of things. This was really a very, very silent thing and it's only noted by the community. So what they do in these cases, and this is what they did, is they just update the document and then luckily there are people in the community that watch these kind of documents and download them every week or so in historic versions. And then it got notified, or it was picked up by a blogger, he blogged about it, and then it was picked up by the press and made its rounds. And today, I have still haven't read a, a press release or a statement from Oracle explaining these changes or, or clarifying them. 
Okay. But that is, again, that's not uncommon for Oracle. That, I think that's what they do with a lot of their these changes. I have to say, if I were Oracle, I wouldn't be all that public about <laughs> something like this. I mean, cloud adoption is a big topic. People are, you know, either interested in or moving all kinds of systems to the cloud. So, you know, I wouldn't be running around announcing negative things either. Now, what do you think the motivation was behind this by Oracle? Well, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that for the most part, I think they just want to clarify more this language. And I have to applaud them for that because before, like I said, it was quite kind of ambiguous with the what's a virtual core, what's a vCPU. So I think now that is at least clear. I think that at the same time, taking a stab at their competitors in the cloud space is probably another one of their objectives, right? They have their own cloud offering, which they like to push. Larry Ellison said that they wanted to be the cheapest and best place to run Oracle databases in the cloud. So one way to be the cheapest is to make it more expensive to run the competitors. So I think that might be the other motivation to it. It would be that, yes. But I also have to say, if you, if you look at comparing cloud licensing to on-premise licensing, it's actually already quite generous. Well, it sounds, sounds bad to say Oracle is quite generous, but Oracle is already giving you the ability to flexibly scale up, right? Because you can, you can hire a tiny VM, whereas that is a lot harder to do. If you buy a physical server, you have to license a whole physical server unless you run Oracle VM. If you're running VMware and you're just assigning GUI CPUs in VMware on-prem, so that's license the whole box. So I think that's already quite generous of Oracle. And if you compare that to the, the practice of basically only licensing four vCPUs in Amazon for one processor license, that is probably cheaper than running it on-prem on for a lot of equipment. So you mentioned that this was kind of detected in the community. What has the reaction among your peers been? Unsurprisingly, most people are not a big fan of Oracle's business practices and how they are really hard with their clients in both sales and license audits. And I think this is practice of changing the, the rules and changing how to count these things after people have already gone through the cloud is not only confusing and, and weird and, and odd, but it's also it's also best practice to do that after the fact, right? Because you plan how to license your, your stuff. You set the budget and then somebody changes the rules. I think that's not fair. Asking for a lot of money for a product, I think that is absolutely fair. But changing the rules as people have already deployed it, I think that is odd. Okay. So are there many Oracle deployments in the public cloud? There's an increasing number. We certainly see an increasing number of clients moving their on-premise databases to the cloud for several reasons, right? It might be that that's just a general direction. It might be to save some money. It might be to save on, on administration costs. But we certainly do say a lot more Oracle deployments moving to the cloud, especially those databases that are not super critical for the business, like all these supporting databases that are, that are used and maintained by the business, but that are not really driving revenue for the business. Got it. So a lot of smaller stuff. And not to pick a clear favorite here, because it's, it's not really, I would consider myself to be fairly a cloud agnostic, but which cloud are they moving to? Most of the clients I see are moving to the Amazon cloud, to Amazon. Got it. And it's either EC2, where it's a, basically a shift and lift, or it's moving to Amazon's RDS service. And are the systems, although they're not critical, are they also large, or do they tend to be smaller that are moving? I would say most of them are smaller in terms of, especially in terms of CPU, in terms of data, I've seen deployments in, in the range of terabytes of the cloud. But then, again, it would be databases that are rather smaller in their CPU footprint. Okay. And actually, that's my next question is, you know, I know when I deal with Oracle professionally, the systems tend to be massive as compared to SQL Server in terms of hardware counts. Are there any kind of average CPU counts that you're seeing being used? 
Ah, oh, it's hard to say, but yeah, around the four, six, eight, four, four or eight. I think eight ECBUs is probably the the average I see. Okay. Or smaller than that. Okay, so it sounds like there, you know, this is a change that's actually going to affect enterprise. The move to cloud definitely yes. I mean, and again, it might be driven by by a number of things, right? It might be because you're, you're most of your applications in the cloud, so you have to put your supporting applications in the cloud as well, just to avoid latency. It might be that a client is pursuing a cloud first or cloud only strategy in the first place, but yeah, definitely cloud is here to stay and cloud is cloud is here to stay for us. And but the interesting question to me also is is how much cloud we use, right? Because as long as it's just a lift and shift, if you're just spinning up an EC2 instance and attach some storage to it and migrate database over it, that to me is not even it's not even a full cloud environment. That's just running my stuff on someone else's computer. And I think it gets really interesting when we talk about the RDS offerings or other managed database offerings or even the cloud native database. I think that's really where things get really interesting. And actually that's a great point on on the RDS type deployments. Will they be affected differently by the CPU count, or are they affected the same? That's a great question. It depends. So with RDS, you have two options. You can either bring your own licenses, and then it would affect you as well, or you can buy the licenses from Amazon, in which case the price is factored into the, the hourly hourly rate from Amazon. And in that case, you would well, Amazon hasn't announced any changes to their pricing, and I don't know if that will change or not. Okay. And that was my next question, because I, I hadn't heard anything, so I was wondering if you had. Certainly, I think a company has the right to adjust its prices in the free market in any direction, but why I'm concerned about this is it sends an overall message of pricing volatility in the cloud. And we've seen other cloud providers remove features without any announcement. They determine there's a security problem or some other problem and a feature that you might have been using goes away. So I, I, you know, I think it, it's hard for IT people and managers. If you had to spend all of a sudden, you have to spend a lot more money. You know, it's, it's a little bit scary to leverage that. Exactly. I think if you can plan your spendings, that's one thing, right? Then you can make a justified decision if you want to say, I want to spend this money for this product. But if you can't be sure if and when this might change again, then that makes it hard. So that's why that's why I said I hope that the main intention of Oracle was really just to make the make the wording more clear and be more specific about what a vCPU is in terms of processor licenses and not to basically just increase the prices. And I, I want to hope that Oracle's intention with the previous version of, of the document were basically to enforce what they are just putting clearer now. Right. So if you're a customer or if your customers are affected by this and they come to you for advice, what advice would you give them? Well, first of all, I mean, it always starts with what do we actually have and how much do we need? Because that's one thing that, especially on an on-premise, we see a lot. We see people, I mean, you buy a server, right? You buy a server not necessarily because that's the server that fits the workload, because that's the server that you use as a standard. So especially on-premise, we see a lot of systems that are basically over-licensed or over, over-spec'd, over where they have way too many CPU cores and they're not using all of them. So that's an easy win, right? And then the cloud, you're probably more cautious about that anyway, because when you have to buy that cloud machine, you think more about how many CPUs do I actually need and want. So I think that's an easy win, and that's the easy thing to think about. Then the other trend is obviously consolidation. If you can consolidate more databases onto the same to the same machine or to the same instance, then you can save that way too. Okay. And then and then lastly, the other thing I, I always try to say is, and there's there's two perspectives to this. One is looking at what's the benefit you get from this, as in remind yourself why you're paying that much money, right? If you have a very very mission critical workload that cannot be down for too long and that you need the best performance from, then it might just be worth paying for the software. And rather than seeing it as, as a burden or a cost, seeing it as an investment into, into your application, into your product. So 
some people, when things like this happen, they have a knee-jerk reaction and they're like, you know, they're upset. They really want to do something about it. Is moving off of Oracle a viable option? Yes, and that's my that's my that's the other perspective to the to the last point I made, right? If you don't see the value of the product you pay for and the return of it, then it might just be worthwhile to look into moving that technology or that application off to another vendor or another technology. And it might be an open source database, it might be a database from a competing vendor. Even though for me that's always sad to see, that's also something that I do see happening, right? A lot of workloads that I would say are not that critical and that, what, 10, 15 years ago you would have just put an Oracle just because people are now thinking two or three times before they do that or they might move them off of Oracle. So it's the holiday calendars or the cantina budget softwares of the world that probably don't need to have the best uptime and the best performance. And people are seeing, yes, there are the databases that I can put this stuff on without much risk and get the benefit out of it. Right. And I think that's good advice, although I hesitate to see, you know, before one decides to do a migration, I suggest you take a good hard look at the cost of migration and make sure that you're going to get payback. And they're not really just doing it out of emotion, you know, based at, you know, one decision. Oracle does create a quality product. That's also absolutely true. And again, I've seen migrations where the product was the third-party application and that third-party vendor had a, had a software, the tool to basically do the migration for you. In that case, it was very easy and you knew that it was supported. And I've seen other clients attempt to move off of Oracle where they have already invested a lot of time and money into developing their software specifically for Oracle, using a lot of PLC SQL, using a lot of the Oracle features, utilizing the Oracle concurrency model. And in those cases, usually find that it's it's not worth the effort and in those cases but you also then come back from looking at this and investigating and seeing oh yeah i now see what i'm getting from oracle because it actually does so many things for me it does have these features that allow me to not reinvent the wheel and then you see what you're getting from the value you're getting from these oracle investments that's a great point taking a look at what else is out there you know, not necessarily with the intention to to move well, there you have it, folks. Bjorn's summarized, given us the basics of Oracle licensing in a nutshell, summarized the change and how it could affect you, and giving you a couple of great tips on how you might be able to minimize the financial impact of the either clarification or change, depending on how you look at it. As always, we like to finish up with a rapid fire round where we get to know our guest a little bit better. Bjorn, are you ready for the lightning round? I think I am. Shoot. Excellent. Let's start with what project are you most proud of? Oh, you've asked that before, and I should have prepared more. <laughs> I, think it was, I think it was a project. We developed a new platform, a brand new platform for a telco client in a very, very short time frame. They had five weeks to go to market from zero to, to everything, basically, and, and we delivered. I think we even, in the end, they cut the, the project deadline by a week. So it was a very, very, very intense time to, to set up this project. And it was also very intense from, from the start because they, they made a decision to start with a project that wasn't quite finished yet. So we had a lot of, so for example, you could place orders on the, on the internet, but then there was no process to take these and send them to the actual fulfillment center. So we had to write these files manually from the database. And that was, those were exciting times. Quite happy that in the end, this project and this startup was very, very successful. Excellent. Okay. Tell us, has there been a book that's had an impact on your career? And if so, what was the book? Again, I should have prepared much better for these questions. <laughs> I think the book that is, that is fun to read and it's good to read is The Phoenix Project. Even though it's not really Oracle-related, it does tell you a lot about how organizations work, how enterprise IT really works, which is not computer science. And so I would say Phoenix Project was probably one of the books that I enjoyed reading the most. 
Excellent. I loved that book. That is a great book about IT. You can, I could really feel I've been through a lot of what they went through throughout my career too. Standing or sitting desk? I sit when I'm at my computer, but I also try to move around as much as possible. I take my calls standing or walking around or just going to a different room. Excellent. Good. Laptop or desktop? I haven't owned a desktop in ages. <laughs> Mac or PC? Mac all the way. Even though I, I kid and say I'm a Mac fanboy, even though I'm, I'm not, it's just that I, I really don't like Windows and like I can't be bothered. I don't have the patience to run Linux on a laptop. So Mac OS it is. Got it. Got it. iPhone or Android? And again, it's Apple, mostly because I'm too lazy to do the integration between the phone and calendars and emails and all that. And I, I love how that's just being pushed automatically to the iPhone. Okay, understood. And what is your you know, best app or an app that you use the most often and how does it help you? Oh, that's probably my calendar. I do appreciate my calendar and looking at that and getting reminded about things that are upcoming. Fair enough. Staying organized is always important. And lastly, if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to read more about or, or see you speak, what's the best way for people to find you and, and where is it? And these days, I would always say just Google for the name. It'll bring up the relevant results. But you can find me on, on Twitter. I do tweet about Oracle-related events and technologies and articles. And then I also blog at Pythian.com. So you go to Pythian.com and look for the blog, and you'll find my stuff in the Oracle section. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by writing a review on iTunes or telling a friend where to find us. Navigating the Datascape.